Amen. Good morning, church. I encourage you all to turn your copy of God's Word to Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10 is we're going to be hanging out this morning. And as you're turning there, I would like to introduce myself for those of you who may not know me. Uh, my name is Matthew Quick, and I am a college student here at Christ Fellowship Baptist Church, which unfortunately means that I am only with you all for seven months out of the year. For the other five months, I reside in this place called Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. Um, for those of you who aren't super familiar with your American geography, um, Wisconsin is about five, 400 miles north of here um, and about 10 minutes south of the North Pole. Um, so if you could go ahead and stand and let's read God's word together. This is Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 10 written by Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It says this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for this morning. I thank you so much for your gathered congregation in this building today. Lord, I also thank you this morning for your son, Jesus Christ who is the only reason for which we gather here today. Lord, I also thank you this morning for this text and the time that you have given me to prepare a sermon from it, Lord. For surely this text has touched my heart, and my prayer this morning is that it would touch these people's hearts as well. Lord, before I begin this morning, I want to pray two things. Firstly, I want to pray for me, that you would guard me from pride and that you would guard me from error. Lord, I pray that me standing up here, that I would just be a vessel for your truth and nothing more. That the words that I speak would be your words and not my words. Lord, secondly, I want to pray for the members and guests here at Christ Fellowship Baptist Church this morning. Lord, I pray that your truth would touch them at their point of greatest need. Lord, I don't know the hearts and the minds of the people here today, but you do. And you know exactly what they need. And Lord, I also pray that if there's anybody in this room who does not have a personal relationship with you, if there's anybody in this room who has never repented of their sins and believed in the gospel, that that would happen and that would happen today. We pray all
all these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Well, how many of you guys started a new hobby this summer? Anybody Anybody start a new hobby this summer? A couple of us, a couple of us in the back of the room. Well, I started a new hobby this summer, and that new hobby was biking. Now, I'm not talking about, like, biking around town with your buddies just for fun. I'm talking about, like, those guys you see going down the highway at, like, 25 miles per hour. They got the helmets on and the sunglasses on and those, like, skin-tight, you know, T-shirts on. Like, I wanted to be one of those guys, right? So I got home about a month and a half ago took a few days of rest, and then I got my bike out of the shed, and I was ready. And what I found out very quickly is that I had completely forgotten how to ride a bike. Because I'm 21, right? So as soon as you turn 16, you get that driver's license. Bikes are old news. So it's been five years since I've ridden a bike, and I got on that bike, and I found out that my balance was totally off. I found out then when I tried to put my feet on the pedals that I was pressing down at all the wrong spaces and I was picking up my pressure at all the wrong places. And then I got to a hill. I'm like, well, what am I supposed to do now, right? Which way is up on the gears? Which way is down on the gears? And after a couple minutes, I, of course, figured it out. Just like the phrase says, oh, it's just like riding a bike. But what that whole story taught me is that so often we need to go back to the basics. Whether it's bike riding or whether it's Christianity, so often we forget the fundamentals of the very principles that we believe in. So this morning I want to ask ourselves, what is the fundamental realities of what we believe in? What sets us apart as Christians? What does it mean that we are saved? And I truly don't know a better text to do that than Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. You see, in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, that is in the book of Ephesians, we find that Paul is unraveling in the book of Ephesians all of the wonders and the mysteries of our salvation. In chapters 1 through 3, Paul goes through all of the things that God has done for us in Christ. And in chapters 4 through 6, he tells us how we're supposed to respond to that. Real quick here, that's a really easy outline of the book of Ephesians. Chapters 1 through 3, what God has done. Chapters 4 through 6, how we respond. In chapter 1, Paul unleashes for us all of the spiritual blessings that God has given us in Christ. In the second half of chapter 1, Paul prays that the church in Ephesus might take hold of those realities. But here in chapter 2, Paul steps back, and he takes the diamond of salvation, if you will, and he twists it and looks at it from a different angle to find once again all that God has done for us in Christ. And if you were to summarize all of what Paul is saying here in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, it would be this. And if you're taking notes, this would be the first thing you write down. It's our big idea for this morning. That God saved us. That God saved us, four qualifiers, from death to life, by grace, for good works. That God saved us from death to life, by grace, for good works. Let's go ahead and dive in this morning in verses 1 through 3. Verses 1 through 3 show us that God saved us from death. Paul's first four words in his text start out like this, and you were dead. And you go, wow, Matthew, you came all the way from Wisconsin to just tell us that we were once dead. And you go, hey, I'm just telling you what Paul's telling you. The key word for these three verses is the word death. 
And I don't know about you, but the last time I tried to talk to a dead person, they didn't respond to me. And that's the thing about being dead, is that you are 100% fully unresponsive. If there is a dead person, right, that you came into contact with, you can, you can try to talk to them, you can pick them up and shake them, you can do whatever you want, but there will be no response. And what Paul is saying here is that that wasn't true of us in the physical realm, right? We're still leaving, breathing, our hearts are beating, but in the spiritual realm, before we found Christ, we were 100% completely dead. We were unresponsive to spiritual realities. You guys have probably all experienced this before. You're out in the neighborhood and you find somebody and your conversation just naturally turns to a conversation where you can share your faith. And you unleash all of your biblical wisdom on them and you think you're impressing them and after you're done with that conversation they go, yeah that's cool, and walk away. And it's sad and it's awful, but the reason for that is because they are spiritually dead. And that is exactly where we were before Christ found us. Paul says we're dead in two things. Firstly, we're dead in our trespasses. You guys all know what the term trespass means. It means to wander off the beaten path where you're not supposed to go. Paul's point here is that we were dead in our trespasses. We were dead because we were walking 100% against God's pattern. Secondly, Paul says we were dead in our sins. Jeff has told us before that the term for sin simply means missing the mark. God has a standard, right, and we have failed to achieve it. But because we were dead in our sins, because we were dead in our trespasses, that all worked itself outwardly in three ways. You see, my friends, before we came to Christ, we followed three things. Firstly, we followed the, wo the world. Look at what Paul says here. He said, before we came to Christ, we followed the course of this world. This is a summary of all of the world's patterns and systems that are 100% and fully opposed to the ways of God. Secondly, Paul says, we followed the devil. Paul uses two phrases to describe the devil here. The first is that we were following the prince of the power of the air. What Paul is getting across here is that the devil is the ruler over this present darkness, over this world. Now, don't get me wrong. God is completely and fully reigning over every power. But in a very real sense, Satan has control of this world. Once again, certainly under God's control. But secondly, Paul refers to Satan as the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. See, now that we are Christians, we follow the Holy Spirit. But before we were Christians, we followed the spirit that was the same spirit that is now at work in those who are unsaved. And that is the devil, Satan. But lastly, Paul says, we followed our flesh. Look at what he says here. We were, we're living in accordance with the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We understand this scriptural principle of the flesh I just want to point out one here. That word mind in the original language means impulses. And I think that's really interesting because before we found Christ, we just followed whatever impulsed us to go. We had no concern for the ways of God. We had no concern for his law, for his principles, for his teachings. We just did whatever we wanted to do in our sinful flesh. And because of all of that, it bore a consequence. Look at the end of verse 3. Paul says, 
we were by nature children of wrath, like all the rest of mankind. You see, my friends, so often we forget that apart from Christ, we would have had to pay for our own sins in hell forever. This is what it means to be a child of wrath, and this is where we must start, right? We must realize that before we came to Christ, we were dead. And because we were dead, we followed the world, the flesh, and the devil. And because of that, we were, nat- we were by nature children of wrath. So some application here before we move on. Let us remember that the unbeliever's story stops here. For those of us who are saved in this room, we have verses 4 through 10. But I would be a failure of a preacher if I stood up here and told you that verses 4 through 10 were true of everyone. Because people who have not repented of their sins and believed in the gospel, perhaps that is some of you this morning, your story stops at verse 3. And if you were to die right now, there is nothing saving you from eternal, physical, literal hell. But secondly, we must remember as Christians, as believers, that our story could have stopped here. That is, of course, apart from the grace of God. One commentator puts it this way. He says, A perfectly righteous God can send a perfectly sinful people to hell and still be perfectly righteous. God was under no obligation to save. But the wonder of the gospel is that the very thing that God didn't have to do is the very thing that he did. First point, God saved us from death. But secondly, God saved us to life. Look at verse 4. But God. Notice the text here. It doesn't say, but Matthew Quick, or but Jeff Robinson, or but the Green Bay Packers, or whoever your favorite local sports team is. It says, but God. These two words alone show us that God is the divine initiator of our salvation. It is not as if we, I'm going to get this right this time, pulled ourselves up by our own bootstraps. Did we get it? Head nods? Head nods? All right. I had to Google it. Not going to lie, right? It's not as if we pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and conjure up enough faith so that we find God. It is but God who rescues us from our sinful, dead condition. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. There's a lot going on in these short verses. So I want to break it down like this. I want to give you guys three what's, three whys, and one when. Three what's, three whys, and one when. Firstly, let's look at the what. What did God do to us when he saved us? Firstly, Paul says, he made us alive. I was listening to a sermon on this text, and the pastor paused at this point and asked the question, what do dead men need most? Any answers from the congregation? What do dead men need most? Well, it's not a casket. It's not a hole in the ground. It's not a funeral. It's life. 
There is nothing more a dead man needs than life. And that is the very thing that God has given to us. Theologians describe this making alive of dead souls regeneration. Regeneration. And put simply, regeneration is God's impartation or God's giving of new spiritual life into our dead spiritual hearts. And let us note this morning, this is the only way that we could have faithfully responded to the gospel. Because dead men can't respond, so we needed to be regenerated that we might have faith and that we might repent of our sins. Secondly, God raised us up. God raised us up with Christ. Now this is the awesome point in the sermon where we get to talk about the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. And this, super fancy by the way, LED cross behind me, shows us that. That we are gathered here today because Christ lived the perfect life that we could not live. That he died an atoning death that we deserve to die. But he rose again three days later, amen? In Romans 6, 5 through 10, I don't have time to read that passage, but if you have time in your personal devotions this week to check out there and just spend some time there, I would encourage you to. Because in those verses and in this verse as well, Paul tells us that as Christ has been raised, so are we raised. We have died with him to death, to sin, to shame, and we have risen again with Christ. Lastly, Paul says that God has seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. Now, I'm not going to lie, this one's a little bit more difficult. Because last time I checked, my physical body isn't in the heavenly places. But I think what Paul is trying to get across here is that our salvation, listen to this, our salvation is not less than, but much more than being rescued from hell. Now, what do I mean by that? So often when we're Christians, we go out and say God has rescued us from hell. That is 100% and certainly true. Yes and amen. But in Ephesians 1.3, Paul says that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That God has given us so much more. There is nothing that he has held back from us. He has given us every spiritual blessing. Now our citizenship is no longer on this world. Our citizenship is in heaven. He has seated us with Christ. Listen to what John Calvin says about these verses. He says, The resurrection and the sitting in heaven, which are here mentioned, are not yet seen by mortal eyes. Yet, as if those blessings were presently in our possession, he states that we have received them. And it illustrates the change which has taken place in our condition when we were led from Adam to Christ. And here's his main point. It is as if we had been brought from the deepest hell to heaven itself. You see, my friends, it's not as if God saved us and given us life just so we could wander around in the graveyard. God has saved us and given us life so that he could bring us up to the heavenly places. But why did God do all of this? Because it doesn't make much sense for a God who is holy and perfect to take somebody who's dead and undeserving of salvation to give him life. But in these short verses, I think Paul gives us three reasons. Firstly, he says that God is rich in mercy. God being rich in mercy. The term rich is Paul's theme word for Ephesians 1 through 3. 
And to be rich means simply to have an abundance of that which is valuable. You guys all understand that? To be rich is to have an abundance of that which is valuable. But what is God rich in? He's rich in mercy. Listen, fellow brothers and sisters, how many times do we sin and we think that God has run out of mercy to forgive us? How many times do we do something horrible and we ask ourselves, man, how can I be a Christian and, and still do this? How could God ever give me mercy for that? Answer Ephesians 2.4. Because God is rich in mercy. He is overflowing with compassion. He is boiling over with loving kindness. God's spiritual bank account of mercy will never run dry. Secondly, God saved us because of his great love. Look at the emphasis Paul puts on love here. He says God saved us because of the great love with which he loved us. He uses that same word, love, twice in a very short phrase. And I certainly can't accurately, fully, comprehensively describe the love of God in a two-minute section of my sermon, or even in a whole sermon, or even in a whole lifetime. But I just want to draw us back to John 3.16. For God so loved the world, that what did he do? He gave up his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God's love is something that in our mortal minds we cannot comprehend. It is his disposition to do good to those who deserve it not. And how we comprehend that in our mortal minds, I don't know. But what Paul says here is that it is true that God saved us because of his great love. Lastly, in verse 7, we find that God saved us for his glory. Now, Paul doesn't use the term glory here, but I'm going to argue that that's exactly what he's arguing for. Paul says in verse 7 that God made us alive, that God saved us so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That is a lot of prepositional phrases. What Paul is trying to get across here is that for all of the end of eternity, we will still be wondering and adoring and beholding and glorifying God because of his love, because of his mercy, because of his grace to which he has given us. One commentator says that it will take all of eternity to fathom God's love, and those who are saved will never plumb the depths of it. And here we find that God does everything, including our salvation, for his own glory. If any of you have listened to any John Piper sermon, doesn't matter which one it is, right? He's going to stick that in there somewhere. That God saved us for his own glory. That for all of eternity, we might be marveling and responding and thanking and beholding the God who poured out on us the riches of his grace in Christ. Real quick here, look at that term immeasurable. That term immeasurable. We measure a lot of things, right? When we built this building, we measured all of the walls. We measured all of the floor plans. But Paul says, no, this grace that God has bestowed upon us, it is immeasurable. But when did God do all of this? When did God do all of this? And Christians, this is so comforting. Paul says, even when we were dead, even when we were dead, in our trespasses, God saved us. Romans 5, verses 7 and 8 certainly comes to mind. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. 
though perhaps for a good person one might, you know, perhaps for, you know, somebody who is good and morally upright. But the scripture doesn't have a category for that. So Paul says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So some quick application before we move on, right? If God saved us when we were sinners, we can be comforted that our salvation is secure. It's not as if you conjured up faith and therefore God rewarded you for that faith and now he saved you. And now that you're in faith, when you fail, God's going to take that salvation away. Look, if God saved us when we were sinners, I'm pretty sure he's going to keep us saved while we're saved. But secondly, if God saved us in Christ, we can be comforted that our salvation is secure. Look at this text again, verses 4 through 7. Three times after those three verbs, Paul says that you have been made alive with Christ, that you have been raised with Christ, and that you have been seated with Christ. Theologians describe this as our union with Christ, that all of our salvation from beginning to end is wrapped up in Christ. And that is a great comfort for us today. Because that means after we sin, we don't have to worry about losing our salvation. Why? Because it is Christ's merit that saves us. Now we're not our merit that saves us. Our salvation is fully and entirely wrapped up in Christ. So firstly, we were saved from death. Secondly, we were saved to life. But the question is, how does any of that happen? Because all of this seems impossible. All of this seems unfair. But that is where we find our third point for tonight, that God saved us by grace. God saved us by great grace. Read verses 8 and 9 with me. Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. Look at real quick here the logical flow of Paul's argument. He says, you are 100% fully, completely dead, right? No one can be half alive or half dead. There's no middle ground. You are 100% dead, but God saved you. And we step back and go, why? For by grace. Real quick, let's define grace here. Grace, uh, uh, biblical definition, is unmerited favor or undeserved favor. Grace is God giving you that which you do not deserve. But I think a lot of times we have a misconception about grace. We think that grace is us in our own striving giving us 60%, right? And God giving us that other 40%. We think that grace is God throwing us the life preserver when we're swimming around in the ocean helpless. Brothers and sisters, neither one of those is grace. Grace is you got a zero. Grace is you were fully and 100% dead, and God made you fully and 100% alive. Grace is not that God threw the life preserver. It's that you were dead and out of breath at the ocean floor, and God dove down deep into it, rescued you, and breathed life into your spiritual lungs. J.I. Packer describes it this way. He says, grace means, just listen to this, grace means God's love in action towards men who merited the opposite of love. Grace means God moving heaven and earth to save sinners who could not lift a finger to save themselves. Grace means God sending his only son to the cross to descend into hell 
so that we guilty ones might be reconciled to God and received into heaven. That is the biblical definition of grace. But secondly, Paul says we have been saved by grace through faith. And I could have, in my sermon outlines, made that a whole separate point. But Paul has other texts that, that go way more deep into what it means to be saved through faith. So real quick here, what is faith? It is the conviction of things unseen, as Hebrews 11.1 1 puts it for us, right? Faith is the conviction or the belief or the trust or confidence that what God did on the cross through Jesus Christ is enough to save us and that we cannot save ourselves. That is the means through which we are saved, and that is the way in which all of God's blessings flow to us in Christ. By faith, we partake of all of the wonders and the blessings of God. But look at what Paul continues to say in the second part of verse 8. He says, this is not of your own doing. The $10 million question here is, what does that word this refer to? Most commentators say that that word this points back to both, both grace and faith. We already know by the definition of grace that it is something that we do not deserve. But what Paul says is that even that faith that you have is not of your own doing. Hebrews 12.2 tells us that Jesus is the author of our faith. So even the faith that we have was a gift of God. It was not a result of works, and it was not a result of ourselves. I want to use the analogy here of a paycheck versus a present. A paycheck versus a present. How many of you guys have received a paycheck in the past couple weeks, right? We, we do a certain list of tasks for a certain amount of time, and we are rewarded with a paycheck. Now, after you received that paycheck, what did you do? Did you fall at the knees of your boss and worship him? No. You said, thanks, I earned that. See you later, bye, right? The glory of the paycheck goes to the one who receives it. But what about a present, right? For Christmas or last week was Father's Day, maybe you received something, a present or a gift that you did not deserve. Who gets the glory of the gift giving? The giver, right? How much more in our salvation if God given, has given us the greatest gift that could ever be given, who gets all the glory? God. It is not us who are boasting as if we deserved it. That's exactly what Paul says. Why did God do this by grace? So that no man may boast. Once again, so that God would get all of the glory. Some application here. What does it mean for God to save us by grace? Firstly, this shows us the difference between Christianity and every other religion. This is what sets, apart, sets us apart, right? Because every other religion, at least all of the ones that I have studied before, is a works-based salvation. You climb the ladder, and God gives you something because of that. It's this Tower of Babel idea that we are working our way up to God. But Christianity says no. Salvation is fully by grace and by grace alone. It is not as if we are working our way up to God. It's God descending to earth by Christ and going to the cross on our behalf. So friends, if anybody ever comes to you and says, how do you know what you believe is right? There's a hundred thousand different religions in the world. How do you know that Christianity is right? You bring them straight to Ephesians 2. And you say, I know Christianity is right because there is nothing I did to deserve it. 
it is fully and 100% by grace alone. But secondly, I think God saving us through grace encourages us to take both our sin and grace seriously. To take both sin and grace seriously. And I'm going to be honest with you guys, this is something that I did not understand until a mentor in my life showed this to me a couple months ago. Because all of this talk about grace might seem as if we are, you know, forsaking the fact that we sin. No, brothers and sisters, sin is serious. Sin put Christ on the cross and sin sends unbelievers to hell. We must take sin seriously. We must repent of our sins. We must confess our sins. We must pray that we don't sin again. We must take measures that we might get away and forsake our sin. I'm not saying that we shouldn't do those things. But what I am saying is that as much as we take sin seriously, we must take grace seriously all the more. That after we sin, if we are truly saved, we can realize and take heart that it is God's grace who has saved us in the beginning, and it is God's grace that continues to keep us saved. So let us not be these Christians who, after we commit a certain sin, just sit around and sulk and be depressed and not talk to anybody because we're so wrapped up in our sin. Let me encourage you to take grace seriously. Once again, that's not an excuse for our sin at all, but we must realize the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. But lastly, as Bonhoeffer would put it, the grace that we believe in is not a secret. The grace that we believe in is something that we respond to, and that is what verse 10 will show us. So firstly, we were saved from death. Secondly, we were saved to life. Thirdly, we were saved by grace. But lastly, what's the purpose of this all? We are saved for good works. Read verse 10 with me. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Look, brothers, there is a reason why this verse is verse 10 and not stuck anywhere in between verses 1 through 9. Because in all of Scripture, the indicative of what God has done for us in Christ always precedes the imperative of what we do for Christ. Once again, it is not as if we conjure up enough faith and we work towards heaven and God rewards us. It is fully in an 100% God saving us by his grace and then we respond. Romans 2.4 puts it that God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. That is the whole pattern of the gospel. Real quick here, if we look at these verses, we see the word his. It says, for we are his workmanship. I would like to argue that that word his is the main point in this text. If we were to translate this verse in the correct order from the original language, it would go like this. It would go, his for is workmanship. His for is workmanship. Now, it doesn't make any sense. That's why we reorder it, right? But the first word in this phrase is his. And I think a lot of times when we go through this verse, we talk about how that word workmanship means masterpiece or poem or artwork. And you know what? If you got that tattooed on your ankle, that's great. Like, that's awesome because we are his workmanship. But what I want to encourage you that the main point of this verse is that we are his workmanship. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. So what? Glorify God in your body. We are not our own. When God saves us, we are not our own. And a lot of times here we 
get mixed up in the relationship between faith and works, the reformers made it real simple. They said, we are saved by faith alone, right? Verses 1 through 9. But the grace that saves, it's never alone. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, but that grace and that faith, it's never alone. There is a response that is required of us as Christians. And perhaps that's the word you need to hear this morning. You understand that you're saved by grace. You understand where you were in your dead condition. You understand that God has made you alive, but you're simply not doing anything about it. Maybe you need to be woken up this morning and realize that the purpose for which God has done all of this is for the purpose that you might live out good works, which he predetermined or predestined for you beforehand. So let us review all that we've looked at this morning. Firstly, God saved us from death. We were 100% and fully dead in our spiritual condition. Secondly, God made us alive. God saved us to life. He has given us life. Thirdly, God did this because of his grace or on the basis of his grace. It is not as if we pulled up our own bootstraps and made ourselves alive. It is fully and 100% by the power of the Holy Spirit. And lastly, God saved us for the purpose of good works. I put a lot of application in this sermon, at least I think I did, but let's summarize our application here. Firstly, for any unbelievers in the room, for those of you who have never repented of your sin and believed in the gospel, once again, your story stops at verse 3. But the good news, as Paul puts it in Romans 10, 13, that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That there is an open opportunity for salvation. If you repent of your sins and believe that what Jesus Christ did on the cross is enough to save you. Isaiah 55, 1 puts it this way. He says, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. God's salvation is free. Why? Because it was fully earned by the merit of Jesus Christ, living a perfect life, dying an atoning death on the cross and rising again. If that is you this morning, don't leave here if the Spirit is convicting you without responding in faith to the gospel. See me, see Clay, see Joe before you leave that we might pray over you. But lastly, for the church, for the saints, for the believers in this room this morning, three things. Firstly, behold the God of grace. Behold the God of grace. I have a professor at school who used an analogy once that there's sometimes texts in scripture that are like Niagara Falls, right? You can't apply Niagara Falls. You just look at it and you wonder and you glory and you behold the one who created it. My friends, this is one of those Niagara Falls texts where we just look into this text and we say, oh my goodness, Lord, you are so marvelous and so wonderful that I am led further to behold you both now and for all of eternity. Secondly, my dear friends, tell others of the God of grace. We're in a new location. We're in a new place. Do the neighbors around us know why we are here? Do the neighbors around us know that we serve a God of grace? Do the people that work with you in your local places of employment, do they know that you serve the God of grace? 
If I was to walk up to one of them and ask them about you, would they respond and say, hey, he serves a God of grace and he's told me about it? Lastly, don't forget how to ride your bike. Don't forget the basics of what we believe in. The fundamentals of what sets us apart. God saved us from death to life by grace for good works. My friends, write that on your bathroom mirror. Make it the wallpaper on your phone. Say it every night before you go to bed and when you wake up in the morning that I am saved by grace alone. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 and how you have revealed to us in your word how we are saved from death to life by grace for good works. God, I thank you so much how this text has touched my heart. God, and I thank you so much for the realization that I have had that I am saved by grace alone, the remembrance of the wonder of the gospel that it is nothing that I have done, but it is fully what Jesus Christ has done for me on that cross. Lord, I pray that we would not forget that. Lord, I pray that we would not forget how to ride our bikes, that we would not forget the basics of the gospel, and that that would empower us to behold you, that it would motivate us to tell others about you, that we from today to all of eternity might glorify the God of grace. In your son's name we pray. Amen.